Hello, this is Brighter Evening, a podcast where we discuss fun, food, and ideas to make the world brighter. Good evening, my name is Josh. Thank you for joining me tonight on Brighter Evening. There's a quote commonly attributed to Stuart Brand, which is, Information wants to be free. This is a quote I typically hear talked about in the uh, kind of computer community, the internet community, people who would call themselves hackers, although not in the breaking into your computer sense of the word. And the idea isn't necessarily that uh, they should have access to all of your data. The idea is that information um, that, that should be available to the public should be free to access. But I'm going to talk tonight about a different side of the idea that information wants to be free. Every day, you create data that's important to you, create information that's important to you, whether that's pictures you take, documents you write, emails you send, text messages, what have you. You create things that are important to you. And data freedom is the ability to access that now and into the future. So I've heard this idea discussed, at least parts of it discussed in different ways, but I've never heard it discussed as a coherent idea. So I've attempted to take these ideas that I've both heard and some of the ideas I've had and put them into a framework to analyze your data freedom. The idea is that you can take control. You can keep access to your data and control who has access, because that's the goal. This data is important to you, and you want to make sure that you're the only one accessing it, if you want to be the only one, and if you share it, that you've been, you're able to share it with who you want. Um, but really at the core of the idea is the fact that it's your data. And I want you to think about that for a minute. When you're using someone else's service, how much of the data belongs to you? How much control do you have? This is a new question. This is a new question because prior to people doing a lot of stuff in the digital realm, when you created something, you created a photograph, you wrote a letter, you maintained physical possession of it. And the only way to deny you access to it was to take it from you or destroy it. There's been tons of stories and movies about that, right? Where people are trying to get to this information and stop its creation or distribution or whatever. But in the digital realm, it's a little bit different. Making copies is very easy. And you can make an unlimited number of high-fidelity copies. Perfect fidelity. And the location of the storage is not always as clear as it was in the past. In the past, if I had a letter, my physical possession of the letter was the storage location. But now, it's less clear. We have cloud services. We have multiple computing devices, cell phones and laptops and servers and different things. And so the location of the data is, is a lot more ambiguous. Is it in one of these locations? Am I storing a copy? Is it a permanent copy? Is it a temporary copy? It's something we don't often think about as we're using it, but we do think about it from time to time when you can't access something when you're not online. So I'm going to talk about these this idea of um, data freedom in, a, in a, a series of levels. So uh, we'll start with the worst level, which is level zero. That means you've been blocked from your own data and you can't access it. This would be like a suspension of a cloud account or something like that. Moving on, the next level would be low level, uh, low level of data freedom. So if you're at the low level, 
That means you don't own your data, you can be denied access, and you do not have rights to persistent access. Right? So typically cloud account stuff, we'll dig into that. The next level is the medium level. That's where you own your data, but you do not have rights to persistent access. So this is when you get a local download of, of your data from some cloud service typically. A high level is you own your own data and you have rights to persistent access. So think about if you create a Word document or you scan a PDF onto your computer. In this case, someone can't take that access away from you. And then full access, the highest level. You own your own data, you have rights to persistent access because there are multiple implementations of the thing that reads it. Um, and there's at least one open source or free software implementation available, right? Um, that's, that's the absolute highest. So in the, uh, the best example of this is something like a text file or a PDF where there's a ton of ways you can open and view a text file or a PDF, and there's a lot of different programs that can do it. So let's start digging into some what it, it's like in some of these levels, how this happens. So let's talk about zero and low freedom together. If you're using a zero cost service, there is a cost. A lot of people don't understand where the cost drivers of something like Gmail or YouTube come from. But to operate something like that actually takes a tremendous amount of money, especially on a large scale because you need to have equipment in data centers. And data centers are very expensive to build. They require extremely reliable power, uh, several paths of connectivity out to the internet. Physically speaking, you have to dig multiple trenches into the building um, or have trenches and pulls. I mean, you have it coming in different ways. Um, you're paying providers for bandwidth. Um, you're paying for the electricity. You're paying for equipment. And this equipment is not inexpensive equipment. And it's being shared by a lot of people, but you're still serving a lot of people and so the equipment gets shared only to a certain extent before it starts to get slow or something so you need more of it right so so operating these services is expensive now the cost for any one individual user for something like gmail probably isn't that high which is how they can give it away based on advertisement but it only works if it's running against a lot of people and so we have these zero cost services zero cost us as consumers that cost a lot of money to operate. And we use a lot of these, all of us do, right? Whether it's Gmail, Google Maps, Facebook, um, you know, Instagram, all these different services. And we all know that they come with their, their own little problems from things like advertising, um, you know, stuff like this. And, and most of these are sold as uh, cloud services, consumer cloud services. Maybe at some point I'll talk more about what the cloud actually is, what that term really means. But consumer cloud services, why do we use them so much? Because they're very convenient, right? At the end of the day, people like Gmail because they can just load up their browser. They don't need a separate application everywhere. Um, and the apps are well integrated. You can work on it on your phone. You can work on it on your computer. You can, you know, connect it to different things potentially. Same with the you know, Spotify or Google Music, right? Spotify is integrated in all kinds of things. Um, and it's it's really easy to use. It's very convenient. Um, and so because of that, you, you run into this, you know, thing of like, well, I'm just going to rely on it. You start re relying on things like Google Docs to hold your documents. And maybe you, you write some stuff there and, you know, you can switch to your friend's laptop and the document's available on your account. It's very easy. Um, so th this is where, where we start relying on these low-cost or free services. 
And now it's possible that in the future these services could start charging money. Uh, some of the services already do, of course, especially the music streaming services and video streaming services tend to charge money or at least have a paid version of their account. But a lot of them are free. And I talked about the costs of operations that are fairly tangible, right? I need a physical building to store the equipment that is responsible responding on the other end, the thing that's holding the email, some computer out there doing that. I need the computers themselves. I need the network connection. I need the electricity. I need the cooling. I need the, you know, contractor who comes in and does the cooling. And I need the systems administrators and the programmers to work on the software that does all this, right? Those are all fairly tangible costs. I think there's one cost that is very frequently overlooked, and that is the cost of administration. And I'm not talking about systems administration, making the servers run well. I'm talking about the kind of human administration. Stuff like password resets is the most obvious, but abuse tends to be the biggest pain. Um, it, it's it's very, very difficult to understand sometimes what what the people dealing with abuse are actually seeing. And if you watch some YouTubers, you'll kind of get an idea from this with ideas like demonetization, why a particular video is demonetized, or why a particular thing happened. Um, but you'll, you'll definitely read these things where people are, um, you know, getting some kind of a, abuse notice or whatever, and it's, it's not necessarily clear why. It can be very hard to predict as a regular user what's going to get you suspended. Um, I'll tell you a story. In the past, company I worked for, we had this service that was free to use, and you know, people used it and stuff. Eventually, we stopped offering it for free because of this sort of abuse problem. And, and some of the things that we sort of considered abuse may not have necessarily felt like abuse to the user doing it. They, they took our service that had some, you know, you went to this one page and took you a different one kind of an idea, and we got a tremendous amount of traffic. You know, this is meant for kind of personal home use, not for commercial use or anything, and it was showing up on you know, some kind of major uh, web portal type thing, right? Some sort of yahoo.com, but for a different country, where people would go there and, you know, would get millions of hits. And so we'd see all this traffic come out of nowhere, and it had a cost to us and was harder to administer. And so sometimes when we saw that type of thing, we would suspend the record, suspend the account. We'd disable it because it was hard to deal with. We'd also see things where people would come under denial of service attacks because someone didn't like what their website had. Um, we saw various forms of this, which were, you know, the, the kind of technical hacking style where they're just sending a ton of traffic down, like a million phone calls. We also saw ones that were more like harassment where people would post just weird stuff online about people that were either clearly false or questionably true or whatever because they were trying to seek revenge. All that kind of abuse is stuff that you have to deal with as a service provider. Uh, one of the ones we had was when um, there was the leak of Ashley Madison. We had a, a website that we were hosting at this company I worked at that actually showed some records from that. And there was a just a flurry of emails and, and letters from lawyers. And, you know, it, it was a lot of stuff to deal with, and we had to figure out what to do. So... For paying customers, we'll have a conversation, right? If especially if they're paying a significant amount of money. But if someone's not paying you anything, maybe you're getting some money from advertisements, you know? Maybe you're not. You're going to 
be pretty quick to ban them, pretty quick to shut them down. And if you're a big company like Google with over a billion customers, or Facebook, or Apple, or Microsoft, you might not have time to deal with all of the appeals. Not really. Not for someone who's not paying you. And so appeals become difficult. If you go and look, there are some horror stories of people who've been locked out of their Gmail account or their Google account. They lose access to all their Google services. This happened recently, and I, I haven't found a link for it, uh, just not, not because it's hard, but for lack of looking recently when I was putting these notes together. But there was a story recently where there was a streamer online streaming his video games and stuff, and he's like, all right, send me a bunch of emojis. And so people were sending a bunch of happy or angry or whatever emojis were appropriate for what was going on in the stream. Nothing malicious, but Google's automated system saw that as suspicious activity and banned a lot of people's accounts. That means they lost access to their email, their documents, their uh, you know YouTube history, the videos they like to watch, all that stuff that they had locked up in there. Any locations they'd saved in Gmail, any location sharing or in uh, Google Maps, any location sharing they're doing, any of that stuff gets blocked. And that's just it, right? This is why I say low and, and zero freedom kind of go hand in hand. Low freedom is something like your Gmail account or your Google Drive, your, your documents. You know, they're all locked up 100% in the cloud in this service that some provider is providing to you. And they're very convenient services, and they're very nice. But if you do something that kind of goes the wrong way as far as the service provider is concerned, they have no qualms about taking away your access, and you can't appeal it. And so that's the danger of low-freedom stuff with your data. Typically, typically comes from services, right? Your data is not truly free in a service like that because they can take it away at any time. And it's not just that sort of situation, right? It's not just the, oh, I got banned. It can also be the company decides they don't want to pursue that business anymore. This happens really commonly. You find a really cool tool that's from some startup in Silicon Valley. You really like to use it, but they don't get enough customers to make money and they shut down. Or they get acquired by a bigger company and the bigger company gets rid of whatever that thing was that they produced because they're really just interested in some piece of that technology and the engineers behind it. When that happens, you lose access to something that might have been really important to you. Um, if you go look at the Google Graveyard website that's out there, you can see there's a bunch of services that Google shut down over the years. I know uh, there's been a few of them that I've used that have been shut down. Um, there's like a notebook one I used to use for some work stuff, um, pre-Google Keep. There was a Google Reader is one that a lot of people got sore about, it looks like, where when it shut down, they were really unhappy that Google Reader was gone because they really liked Google Reader. And there's no particular problem with it, just it wasn't it wasn't part of the plan of what Google wanted to do moving forward. That stuff happens pretty regularly. And if your particular thing that you rely on is on the chopping block, you're going to be left there without access to your data at all. That's the risk of low-freedom services, low-freedom ways of dealing with your data. So medium-freedom uh, software and services. This is essentially a cloud service with an export. Uh, so this is going to be something like Google Takeout, uh, Facebook's export. A lot of these services have a way of taking your data and exporting it. That means you, if you run the export before the system shuts down or you get banned, 
you won't lose access to the underlying data. It will be a lot less useful, right? You're not going to be able to do nearly as much with it because it's going to be in, in a fairly hard to deal with format typically, right? All these pictures are organized into albums and now they're just a bunch of, you know, long strings that don't make sense. So you got to go sort them again yourself, but maybe you get access to the pictures. Um, you see this, like I said, with Google Takeout, Facebook has an export feature. Um, another one like this that could be concerning is Microsoft OneNote. You do get a local copy of your notes on your computer. It's in a format that you can't really get to. There is a way to export it to something a little bit more manageable if you're using the Windows version, but it's not available on the web version. It's not available on the Mac version. So, you know, you're, you're kind of at a risk if you're using OneNote to keep all your notes. Um, and th this sort of medium freedom idea is not restricted to just services that process your data, right? Services that you use. It could also be software you download and the data it creates. So a great example of this is a video game called Tron Legacy. Uh, sorry, Tron Evolution. It came out in 2010, I think, associated with Tron Legacy. Um, it was released, like I said, in 2010. People like to play it. Some people do the speedrunning thing where they try to see how fast they can beat the game. You know, people are really interested in the game. That's a competitive thing. This uh, game was produced, of course, by Sony, the studio behind Tron. And they had an agreement with another company to provide digital rights management. Digital rights management is a way to use some of the stuff we talked about in the encryption episode to ensure that only people who've purchased something are allowed to use it. You see this stuff in Netflix. You see it in um, Hulu. You see it on DVDs. Um, they different technologies in different ways, but it's, it's all the same idea, right? It's a way to restrict use of some software or some video or some audio to to ostensibly people who've purchased it. Now, your expectation when you purchase that stuff is once you purchase it, you have a right to it. And if you're playing Tron Evolution, that's not the case. You could have paid full retail price for this game, 2010. Nine years later, you pull it up on your computer. It's fine. You decide you want to get a new computer and install it again. Well, Sony's agreement with this provider expired. They no longer provide the digital rights management service that allows viewing it. So the software phones home on installation. And the phone home service that it's talking to no longer responds. And so the software will refuse to install now. That's pretty bad, right? You, you lost access to something you paid money for. And it wasn't like it was a rental. It was a purchase. There's other software that does this sort of stuff. You install it, it phones home to see if it's still allowed to run, if it's still authorized and licensed. Um, you know, I, I think about um, the Adobe Creative Cloud as an example of this, where, you know, it, it does seem to be fairly high freedom in some aspects and medium freedom in others, depending on um, on how the how the software is implemented, but. If you're looking at something like Photoshop, it phones home regularly, and if you don't have an, an account, like you don't pay anymore, you lose access moving forward. Um, it is possible that someday in the future Adobe decides they don't want to sell Photoshop anymore. I, I think it's unlikely, but at least it's theoretically possible that Adobe decides they don't want to sell Photoshop anymore because they've got this new thing that's worth way more to them. If that were to happen, I think there'd be a lot of upset graphics designers, right? But 
the thing people would be really upset about is the projects they'd worked on, the workflows and stuff, are no longer available to them. All right, so let's talk about high freedom software. And high freedom software is, I would say, traditional software. Um, this is the software that, you know, if if you were born in the 70s or 80s or 90s and you had a computer growing up, you would have been familiar with. This is what you would have seen as traditional software. You have a local file on your computer that is the data you're creating. You have some program installed in your computer that can access it. Software doesn't need to phone home to get a license or keep working. Um, if it does, that's going to put it back in medium freedom, right? Maybe, you know, maybe there is some sort of licensing key to it. And I know a lot of old video games had this thing where you'd have like a uh, some weird thing you'd have to look at that came in the box. So if it was, uh, I'm trying to think of some games I remember. Uh, Sim City had this red, red card, red and black. It was really hard to photocopy. It had these kind of funny looking symbols, and you'd have to match up the funny looking symbols, and it would tell you the name of a city or something like that. Test Drive had this little wheel you had to spin around to find out the answer to some questions. And once you put those in, it would let you in. But the key was, you had this on your own computer. Didn't need to talk to the network. It wasn't really feasible up until the mid-2000s anyways to rely on that. And what you create is available, right? It's it's there. It's on your computer. Um, I think about CAD programs are like this, right? You save a CAD file. You can load it up. Word processing. If I write a, a Word document or a, a LibreOffice writer document, um, same thing with spreadsheet programs, right? Excel or... Uh, LibreOffice Calc, right? I could I could sit there and I can create my spreadsheet. I can create my word processing document, and I can save it and I can open it up later, right? I I don't lose access because I have the right to install that software again on a second computer, or a third computer, or a fifth computer as I get new computers to replace my old ones. Um, I might have to pay for multiple licenses if it's on multiple computers at once, but it's installed locally on my computer, and access can't be taken away from the files that are on my computer. Of course, at this point, you know, you're looking at something where you probably want backups, especially if it's local only. Some high freedom software has a an online component. Um, one, one example of this would be Office 365, where some of your documents will automatically be backed up and they'll be available on the web, but you also have a copy on your computer and you have a local copy of Word. Now, of course, Office 365 gets to be a little bit funny because it's not really a it's a it's a it's not a purchase thing. It's a it's a service you pay for on an ongoing basis. So because of that, you know, you you kind of can end up in this sort of medium freedom spot. But it is possible to buy uh, permanent licenses for Microsoft Word. So if you have that plus you have Office 365 for the storage side of it, you could have an online version plus a local version. Uh, in episode two, I mentioned this idea of um, local first software. It was in protocols and products. I'll, I'll link to the paper and, and again in the show notes. Um, it's really neat. It's a neat idea. It's an idea of something that operates as an online service, but can be self-hosted and it works offline. So that the idea is that it's like your word processor or something, right? It's like like this Office 365 example where you do keep copies of your data locally, but 
you also have this online component, and they work together pretty seamlessly. Um, that paper talked a lot of about a lot of special data structures and techniques that you can use to make this sort of idea work correctly, but it's not necessarily necessary in all cases. You could do something a little simpler like Dropbox, where you copy the data in and it, you know, it's copied out into this other service where it's synchronized. And if you if you do a few other little things, you could probably do some stuff along the lines of live editing. What makes sense for a given technology kind of depends on that technology. So let's move into full freedom. Um, in full freedom, we're talking about software that definitely has a local version. It can be local only, or it can be local first, right? This idea where it works locally, but also has an online component. Um, you have to have local copies of the files to be full freedom. And one of the key things is you need a documented file format. That means that the file format, whether it's a Word document or a PDF or whatever, is well specified so that into the future, someone who is a programmer could go read the specification and understand it to the point that they could read this file. Um, and you need to have more than one implementation of software to talk to it. So Microsoft Word has gotten better at this over the years. In the you know, say 1995 to 2000 timeframe, for example, Microsoft Word's file format wasn't really well specified. The only thing you could open Word files with was Word. Um, and it, it had reasonably good compatibility between versions, but if you jump too many versions, it's not very good. Uh, there was, I want to say it was Massachusetts at some point had required open standards for document formats. And so OpenOffice, which had been a part of, uh, or maybe not a part, but it descended from some work Sun had done under StarOffice, had a fully open file format that was based on XML. So that was that met the needs, and Microsoft didn't have something that met that need, and they didn't want to give up their advantage because Microsoft's Office Suite is kind of the industry standard everywhere. So they came up with a, a more open standard that is is better implemented. Now, how many implementations of the Microsoft Word format, Doc, you know, the DocX format, are there? Well, there's the one main one, and there's a few smaller ones. Uh, I've mostly seen them as like cell phone apps. That said, LibreOffice can, and, and OpenOffice for that matter, which is, you know, they're kind of competing versions that have a similar ancestry. They're both able to read um, Word documents and work with them. Uh, they might not get everything 100% right, but for the majority of documents, it's going to be perfect. Uh, you also have, um, you know, the, the LibreOffice format, which is the ODT format. It's the one I was talking about that Massachusetts had been considering. Uh, and that format is also open. So if you pick one of those formats, you're pretty safe. ODT is probably a little bit safer, but then again, DocX being documented and being used by the largest word processing software package in the world by a huge margin is also probably pretty safe. Um, there's some other formats that are out there that are, are very safe though. PDF is very well documented. There's many, many implementations, including um, free software open source implementations. And the reason that the open source concept is so important is because into the future, 50 years from now, when, when you're much older than you are today, you don't know what's going to happen with the companies that are here today. Right? Not many companies last 100 years. And if they don't, 
what they what they did may go away. And so if if you think about, you know, some of these old 80s and 90s DOS games and software, right? You've run Windows 3.1 or whatever. You can you can install that stuff and use it. But it gets difficult. It gets to be more and more difficult actually with each generation. The hardware that ran Windows 3.1 is very different than the hardware today. It's mostly compatible if you're using a, you know, regular PC or, or Mac type computer, right? They have similar processors and things. But there are also some very large differences. You don't have floppy drives anymore. You don't have things that it assumed were part of the system. So because of that, you start to lose access to this stuff if you don't have an open format. PDF is great. Very open format. The open source implementations are great because that software with the source being available can be adapted into the future for people who want it. Text files are pretty amazing in that way because if you have a text file, that's, uh, you know, and I'm speaking biased as an English speaker, of course. If you have a text file, ASCII text is probably going to be the most compatible thing into the future that anyone can imagine because it's such a common thing. Um, and if it's UTF-8 and you're speaking English, it's the same as ASCII, right? There's text files are great. If you start going into other languages where there's accents or they're using a different alphabet, text files get to be a little bit more tricky because the older formats aren't universally compatible in the way that the newer formats are, the UTF standards are. But that said, text files are great because there's lots and lots of programs that can read text files. Now, they're only text. There's no formatting. There's no uh, pictures in it. But for a lot of data, that's okay. You're taking a couple notes. It's fine. You want to explain instructions on how to do stuff. It works great for that. You can do some kind of mild formatting with asterisks and, and dashes and things. Um, so that's a great open format. Video files are also a pretty good open format and it, this is an interesting interesting dilemma in my mind because many of the video formats people use still have a lot of patents associated with them so you can't freely create them but if you're looking at something like the MP4 X264 which is the standard like almost every video file you encounter today is using it's very well documented. There's a lot of implementations of it in you know programs like VLC, FFmpeg, uh, Windows Movie Player, QuickTime. It's built into the hardware of phones and computers and video cards and stuff. Like it's very very widely available. To, there's uh, JavaScript decoders. I think Cisco donated essentially enough licenses to allow Firefox to include a software only decoder in Firefox. So if you're creating a file, a video file today, that's the format you want to pick because it's likely to be available well into the future. If you're talking 20 years ago, you know, you look at AVI versus MPEG, MPEG was at least a standard, and you'd go with that. Um, and this is MPEG-4, right? Into the future, there's new video formats coming. Um, there's another one that's here, H625 or X625, uh, uh, sorry, it's 265, uh, the HVEC standard. That one's a little bit dicier because of the, the licensing issues. The, the There's two different standards bodies who each hold a bunch of patents. They don't get along with each other. So if it's something you want to be able to have access for a long time, that one is a little trickier because it's harder to get support on it. Um, but the, the efficiency is better. There's another one that's being worked on called VP1 that's going to be very efficient and sidesteps this whole patent issue very well. 
Um, so those are some of the kind of open standards, right, and, and open documented formats that are very important. Uh, I'd also throw into this category um, email software. Now, if you're using Gmail from gmail.com or using outlook.com, you don't have email software installed on your computer permanently. It's only installed for a few seconds as you get to that web page. And you inter while you interact with that web page, it's running on your computer. But when you close it, it's gone. And the next time you go there, it can change entirely. But if you're using Thunderbird, using Outlook installed on your computer, you're, you're kicking it old school and running Eudora Mail, which I, I don't know if Eudora Mail even still runs on modern computers. But it's it it was an option, right? Like you could you could still check email in Eudora Mail today using Windows 3.1 as long as you can get the computer connected to the internet somehow. Um, you might not be able to have any of the modern security. You might only be able to use certain types of email providers, but it would still work. And so if you have a locally installed email program, uh, especially something like Thunderbird, that's a free implementation. It stores in standard formats like the um, Mailder format. If you've got that, well, that's pretty cool because now you've got a local copy of your emails. You have full freedom, full data freedom on your emails, which is which is neat. It's something you wouldn't necessarily have. Um, and, I, and that kind of takes me into this discussion of networked software. Um, networked software and data freedom becomes a little, little bit more nuanced, or maybe a lot more nuanced, because... Like with the, what I was saying with email, email itself is networked. It's a service. But if you listen to the discussion in, in the second episode on protocols and products, email is a protocol. And so there are ways to do multiple implementations. There's ways to host it yourself. Um, and there's a difference between the program on your computer and the provider. You can self-host. You can be your own email provider. It's something I've been doing as a hobby for, for about a year now. It's not hard to do. Um, you can get your email on your phone, and you can get it on your computer using different software, and you can have a local copy of it. That gives you the option for full freedom, uh, at least as full as you're going to get on a full network application. Um, I think email is probably one of the more clear-cut ones because it is a protocol. There are those options. Web browsers are a lot less clear-cut. The web browsers themselves tend to be in the full or at least high category. They tend to there's multiple implementations of web browsers. Uh, if you store something locally, you can read it, and that all works. But what you access typically is in the low category. You don't have persistent access to it if the provider takes it down. So if you go to a recipe website, and tomorrow the recipe website pulls that recipe off their website, you can't go back to that link. You have to save a local copy of it. If you save a local copy, then, then you've got full freedom on that data. Now, you need to understand the kind of copyright implications of that. It's probably fine if it's for your personal use. You know, you use a web clipper or copy and paste it into your note-taking program. That's probably fine. But I'm not a lawyer. You shouldn't rely on me for legal advice. Um, contacts and calendar. These are, for, I think, historical reasons, generally pretty high freedom if it's software you're running on your computer. There are services that can block you, though, right? If you're, if you're just using Google Contacts or Outlook.com, for your email, they could get your calendar and just block you from it. But on your phone, you'll still have a copy of all of your appointments, probably, depending on how they do it. Most services aren't going to do it in a way that's going to completely cut you off. Um, chat. I'm going to go with a broad definition of chat here. Um, I had a conversation at, at work a few years ago where I was talking about, you know, people talking in chat rooms, and someone goes, 
do people even use chat rooms anymore? And I go, well, we're using Slack here. Isn't that just a chat room? She's like, oh, yeah, right. Um, so we'll go with the broad definition of chat. That's anytime you use, you know, an instant text message, right? So whether that's instant messaging, texting, whatever. And you tend to have either fairly high freedom or fairly low freedom and not much in between. Um, there's some high, high freedom open standards. SMS and text, I'd say, is probably the highest freedom because um, at least you can get different phones, different platforms. Um, on Android, you can get different programs even that allow you to send text messages. Um, all the carriers support it. It's it's pretty globally available. There is a bit of funniness though because uh, you can get you can maintain access to the messages you've had. Actually, sending the messages is a fairly complicated thing from a technical standpoint. So if you wanted to set up your own SMS system, you know you've got to do a ton of work, including getting licensing from the FCC or or whatever local regulatory body oversees radio communications in in your your country. Um, Jabber slash XMPP and IRC, totally open standards, lots of different programs that can use that standard. Um, you know, MIRC was the big one I always used, or Merck, as a lot of people call it, uh, when I was growing up and using Windows. Um, I think HexChat's pretty popular now. I, I, you know, there's people that use uh, IRCC or something, IRSSI. I don't know how that's supposed to be pronounced. Um, but if you're an IRC person, there's a lot of implementations. If you're using Jabber, and this isn't the Cisco Jabber product, which is based on the, the Jabber protocol, but just general XMPP, general Jabber, there's a lot of different programs that can talk that. Um, Pigeon, I think, is probably the most popular one out there, or the most well-known one, but there's a bunch of them. Um, Gadget is a pretty neat one. Uh, there's Jammy, which used to be called Ring.cx. That's a really interesting distributed open standard. I, I haven't experimented with yet, but it it would definitely fall under the high freedom definition because you are the only person who gets a copy of your data and you get to keep the copy local to your computer. Um, you have Matrix, which is um, this, this new system for linking instant messaging networks and doing instant messaging. The program that goes along with that is called Riot. There's a bunch of different ones that you can use. You can run your own server, very much in the high freedom category because you can maintain your own copies of stuff locally. Uh, low freedom, these are the ones that are really common. Uh, WhatsApp, right? If you're using WhatsApp, that's that's low freedom. It maybe maybe gets into medium freedom because you can keep a backup, but that um, that backup is only useful if you can still access WhatsApp. So if WhatsApp shut down tomorrow, Facebook decided they didn't want to run it anymore, you would lose access to all your chats because that data is not stored in a way that's useful outside of that one application that one provider gives you. Facebook Messenger definitely very very much a low freedom product. I don't think it even has export Google Hangouts same deal there's no exports on Google Hangouts um, so whatever's in your Hangouts history could eventually go away iMessage is low freedom uh, maybe medium freedom because you do get local copies of your messages on some devices but again <clears throat> single provider single implementation right it's just Apple that does iMessage they you can't communicate with non-Apple users on it you you can't do anything if Apple changes the way it works. They have a pretty good track record. If you're in that in that world and the people you're talking to are in that world, they have a good track record. And you know, people generally do trust Apple when it comes to security. 
but there are no guarantees, right? If it, it doesn't make business sense in the future, iMessage could go away or it could disappear, it could change in a way you don't like. Uh, Discord also falls in the low freedom category. They've designed it in a way that it feels high freedom. Uh, Discord is a, a chat system that's you know does voice and, and group chats, uh, very much used by gamers and stuff. And it's saying it seems like it did it's open in a way that it's really not. But they've made it feel that way, which is interesting. Um, I'll I'll throw Signal the the Signal program out here. It's a there's an app for Signal you can get on your computer, you can get it on your phone. Um, it is somewhat open. And you do get persistent access to it, but um, it, I wouldn't say it's it's as high freedom as Matrix. It has a different goal, though. Its goal is to be um, secure chat for the masses. So I I have a hard time fully classifying it as high freedom or full freedom. I guess I would say that it's it's probably high freedom and not full freedom, whereas things like Jabber and IRC and Matrix are really full freedom. Um, and then well, I'll talk about the file sync clouds. Um, that's Dropbox, that's Nextcloud, that's Google Drive, iCloud, sync thing. I'd say in general those are high freedom. They generally keep a copy of your files locally with an option to not synchronize certain things to certain devices. So if you have it on your computer, you get your own local copy of it. It's actually high freedom. Um, if it's um, if it's not stored on your computer, so you're just using it to store stuff out on the cloud, you don't keep a local copy, or you only have it on your phone, then it, it actually stays more in that low freedom category because you could be denied access. Um, there are some interesting ones. If you're talking about things like NextCloud, it actually is probably the most full freedom option because... OwnCloud and NextCloud are two different implementations, and it uses all open standards. Uh, SyncThing only has a sing single implementation, but it's it's open and free, um, and it only connects to your devices. So whether or not that's full, ac full or high kind of depends on how you want to look at it. But I would say that NextCloud, OwnCloud, and SyncThing would be your options if you're looking for full freedom for your data, and you want to do data sync. Really cool stuff um, to, to have these options of copying your data around automatically and making sure you've got synchronization. Um, you know, I could also kind of mention backup services. You really want a high or full level of data freedom in your backup service because if your backup service provider disappears on you, that's a bad thing. So the more standards-based and reproducible your backup solution is, the better. And you should have a backup solution for your data because... It's important to you. You don't want to lose it. There's a saying that people don't want to pay for backup, but they definitely want to pay for restore. And I've talked to more than one person who's lost data that's important to them because they had some problem with their hard drive or whatever. And you don't want to fall into that category. Set up some backups, and um, you can set it up with software that is generally high freedom. Now, you got to make sure you copy it off-site, and that's where the, the trickiness comes in. But... Um, but you can do it. There's some good software out there like Duplicati that is fairly easy to use. It's not as easy as some of the commercial products, but it does allow you a lot of freedom in where you store the data. So I hope that in this discussion you've learned something about how you can analyze the freedom that you have over your data. And as far as what actions to take, I wouldn't advocate to anyone to stop using cloud services entirely. It's actually really hard to do because they're very convenient.
Um, but you can you can try to make choices that will bring you into an area where you have control over your data. You have some data freedom. You save your copies locally. Use open file formats. Just focus on maintaining access to the things that are important to you. So don't rely, if you've got photos you can't lose, they're too important to you. Don't rely just on Facebook to store them, or Facebook and Google. Make sure you keep a copy locally. Have a, an external hard drive, something, so that if these services decide that you're you're blockable, right? You're you're some kind of up to some mischief, whether or not you are, that you'll still maintain copies of the stuff that's important to you. Maintain your data freedom. It's something that you can do, and you don't need anyone to give you permission to do. It's really just about analyzing and deciding what's appropriate for you and for the things that are important to you. I appreciate you listening. I appreciate um, all the all the listeners we've had over the last few weeks. It's been really exciting to see some people have been um, tuning in and, and learning more. So I appreciate you listening all the way through this, and I hope that I've made your evening brighter. My name is Josh. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Brighter Evening. I hope I've made your evening brighter. You can subscribe to us by RSS on Google or Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information on the show or this episode, please visit brightervening.com.